Zachary and Jojo have been good to you guys these past couple of weeks. And that the time away from uh, the series we have been studying has been in its own way refreshing to you. But we're back in the book of Matthew. And if you turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, we start a new chapter halfway through in uh, Matthew chapter 6. So uh, since we've been away from the Sermon on the Mount for a while, why don't we read? Let's read chapter 5, and then we'll stop once we read verse 4 in chapter 6. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we'll get a long, long running head start. Let's read God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not in iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid
the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And thus reads the very living word of God. Charles and Susanna Spurgeon owned chickens. Every morning they would wake up and collect their eggs from their chickens that had laid, been laid the night previous. And eventually, word got around that the Spurgeons would refuse to give away any of the eggs laid. They said, if you want them, you'd have to pay for them. Even their closest relatives were told the same words. Therefore, a different word eventually spread around. A word, something along the lines that the Spurgeons were greedy and 
grasping. Uh, They wouldn't share their chicken eggs. But the Spurgeons uh, accepted the criticisms without defending themselves. And it was only after Miss Spurgeon passed away did the truth concerning their chicken eggs truly come to light. Uh, For you see, all the profits for the sales of the eggs went solely to support two elderly widows. Uh, We're entering a new section, if you haven't figured out already, of the Sermon of the Mount. After going into uh, heavy detail concerning how the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is to understand and therefore obey the law of God, Jesus now moves to describe the overflow of obedience in the real world. Hence, this is why he begins this new section with, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Practicing your righteousness. It is the application of righteousness, the practice of it that Jesus wants to move us towards and draw our attention to. Because what is orthodoxy or the right knowledge without orthopraxy, the right practice? What is the use of your knowledge of what is right when you do not practice it? In other words, when you have both the right knowledge and the right practice, when these two are held together also by the right motivation, the end product is genuine Christianity. Right knowledge plus right practice plus right motivation equals genuine Christianity. Jesus moves to describe what is genuine, meaning what is directed towards God and what is fake, what is superficial, what is directed towards self. The topics covered in the list here that we're going to study in the next couple of weeks are not meant to be exhaustive. Rather, it's just a sample of common topics amongst Christianity and the religious of that time. Topics such as what we're going to see here, almsgiving, charity, prayer, fasting, planning for the future, are all examined with one thought in mind, meaning, is this for God's glory, or is this for self and self-glory? And so this evening, we will look at the first of many tests concerning genuineness. It's not a real word, but I just... Made that up. And so the sermon that's titled tonight is titled Genuine Charity. Genuine Charity. Charity referring to an older use of the term, uh, but more general uh, in terms of usage. It means the love of people through selfless acts of service that can include, but does not only refer to the giving of money. Though nowadays, that's what it's commonly thought of when you hear the word charity. So the basic premise is this. 
Any act of charity, any act of service must be done solely with the motivation of pleasing your heavenly father rather than for the approval of men. Any act of service, any act of charity, any act of love must be done solely with the motivation of pleasing your God rather than yourself. Simple enough. But I think Jesus gets into our kitchens a little bit. And so the text breaks down neatly into just two parts. If your Bibles have two paragraphs, that's what we're going off of. Two parts revolving around one's actions and intentions before their heavenly Father. First is this. Part one, the reward you seek. Part one, the reward you seek. We'll just look at verse one for that. The reward you seek. And the second part, part two, the latter part, the praise you receive. The praise you receive. Verses two through four. And so let's look at, let's go back to verse one. Matthew chapter six, verse one says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. The the reward you seek. This first verse functions as the, the new heading, the new chapters, thesis statement, if you will. You've all read, written a paper here before. Even you middle schoolers. Yeah. <laughs> middle schoolers, you guys all have written a paper. You know what a thesis statement is. It is a statement that governs the entire thought of everything that will be explained. And so let's break down Jesus' new thesis statement for this section. Beware. Beware. How many times have you read that word beware in your Bibles? How many times is a term with this much gravitas, this much weight, this much seriousness, this scary word is written in the Bible? I would say you guys can probably think of some, a couple of instances Out of the 24 times it is used in the New Testament in this form, only here is Jesus directing that term, this warning to the listener, to the reader, for the reader, for the reader. You will read of Jesus giving warning for Pharisees and scribes, pay attention to them. Uh, beware of them. You will read of the Apostle Paul calling to attention, for, for example, like the leaven of the false teachers. Beware of them. Beware of disunity, so on and so forth. But only here, only here is Jesus directing this beware, this give attention, this take heed lest you fall to us, to the listener. Beware not of an external source, but beware of yourself. Something that comes internally. Beware of yourselves. Beware of practicing your righteousness. One would immediately ask, shouldn't it be a good thing we're practicing righteousness? How can practicing righteousness or doing good or serving God be something we must be aware of? This concept gets at the very heart of Christianity. This is the motivation bit I talked about in our little formula. 
at the heart of Christianity is, in fact, the heart. Your heart matters to God. Scripture is described as a two-edged sword, um, able to read and divide the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. Meaning, when you examine Scripture, when we read all these verses in chapter 5 and these opening verses in chapter 6, when you read your Bibles, you yourselves are the one who is being read. Meaning, God cares about your heart. He cares about what you think, what you say, what you do, what you intend on doing. Therefore, when Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness, you know for a fact the heart is being addressed here. Because from here on, Jesus will only speak to your heart. The heart is the control center of the person. If your heart is set upon yourself, it is set upon sinning. You can be 100% sure that you will sin. You will give in to temptation. If your heart is set upon pleasing God, you can be more sure that you will please God. Makes sense. Furthermore, before becoming a Christian, think back when you were a non-Christian, when you did not believe, Scripture says that you had a dead heart, a heart of stone. You are dead. Though your physical heart beats, mine was out there, your spiritual one has completely flatlined. Therefore, becoming, before coming to know Christ and believing upon him in faith, before the Spirit of God causes you to be born again, there was no way you could do anything that pleased God, even if you tried, because your heart had no inclination for anything outside of yourself. Therefore, Jesus tells us to beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness, which is inherently good before other people. Because Jesus knows that our heart is still fleshly. That is, our heart is still tied down, weighed down by sin. Now, Jesus gets into the specifics of heart motivations here. He says, in order to be seen by them, seen by them, by others, Uh, last time I checked, everyone in this room, we are not monks. We do not live in faraway lands practicing our religion. Uh, True Christianity is in the world, but not of it. Uh, Meaning there will be many times and many instances in which our good deeds will be seen by other people. That's just the nature of living in this world. However, Jesus specifies the motivation here in order to be seen by others, the approval of man. It is not only one of, but maybe the chief motivation for people. For many of you, I bet. Sometimes for me too. People want to become famous. People want to be seen and heard. They want to be known. They want to be followed, regardless of what scale it may be. Hence why social media, apps like Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, you guys know those. All these apps you use become such a smash hit. Why? Why are they so popular with people? 
Because it addresses a deep need that people want, that people crave, which is the attention of other people. Attention. Attention from man. The dopamine one gets as they see the likes, the comments, the subscribes, the follows, all fuel and flame people's sinful need to be seen and heard, liked and approved. Now, co-opt this, combine this with the, this need of attention with doing good. Well, you have the Christian influencer. Just kidding, just kidding. You have the recipe for fame. Small or wide. However, Jesus knew of this craving, this desire for attention, and man's approval, this craving, this addiction, this, it existed far before smartphones, far before social media influencers ever existed. Because in some way, shape, or form, nothing is new under the sun. It was true before in Jesus' day, and it is true after. Jesus explains that if it is the attention of man that you seek, that is all the reward you will seek. Then it is all the reward you will get. Nothing more, nothing less. You will find quickly that this attention, this, these likes, these comments, these, this approval for man is fleeting. You will constantly need to remind yourself and others of how great of a person you are and therefore it's just a downward spiral of how more self-consumed you will be. Furthermore, Jesus says that if you choose to pursue the reward of man now, the reward of your heavenly father shall be absent. And this is the crux of Jesus' argument in this new section. Everything rightly revolves around one's actions before God and for God, your heavenly father. This is the principle that holds true regardless of whether we pay attention to it. God is always watching. God always knows. He knows our thoughts and our desires even before we communicate them. He knows everything. It is in the context of God's omniscience and God's omnipresence do we discover that our practicing of our righteousness is either done for the pleasure of self or the pleasure of God? In short, Jesus is warning us that if the short-term gratification of pleasing self and drawing attention from men is what we seek, that is what we shall receive and nothing more. However, the reward of God is seen in the long term. If you take shortcuts now, then you reap the consequences of those shortcuts in the future. If you seek to please man now, then the pleasure of God in the future will be starkly absent. Instead of hearing, well done, good and faithful slave, enter the pleasure of your master, you will hear something along the lines, and I'm reading in between the lines here. Um, you'll hear something of, you were neither good nor were you faithful as you only sought your own pleasure. Thus, you received that when you did it. You have nothing, nothing left to gain here. Finally, notice that at the end of verse one, that our Father, our Heavenly Father, is in heaven. It is that eternal perspective that drives our present living. 
your eternal perspective, how you view heaven, how you view the future drives and motivates your living now. Does that make sense? It is the thoughts of heaven that motivates the life of faithfulness on earth. Uh, There is present toil, absolutely, but it will be met as we sung with future rest. There is present suffering, absolutely, but that will be met with eternal peace. Our Father is in heaven. This also alludes to his otherworldliness. He is not concerned with the things of the world because they are fleeting. Everything is going to burn. However, there are things on the earth he is concerned about, namely eternal souls. Souls, those things are eternal. What is the entire point of practicing righteousness in the first place if it is not to be seen by men? We do so because God desires to see righteousness, his righteousness on display by his children. He wants his children to embody righteousness, not for personal gain, Because as we are righteous, we draw others to see this heavenly father that deemed us righteous in the first place. When the attention is drawn away from ourselves, the natural recipient of that attention or of that glory is directed towards God and rightfully so. Therefore, the praise you seek must never be the praise of self, but the praise of God and God alone. When God is praised and glorified from a pure heart, then rewards are stored up in heaven and will be given out in their due time. So the best practice we should adopt when it comes to our service uh, first should be one of self-examination. Why are we doing the things that we are doing? Why are you serving? Why do you come to youth group? Why do you tell people about Jesus? Is it to make you look good? Is it, or is it to make God look good? Are you trying to make your, more self, yourself excuse me, more appealing, more kind, more likable by people? That you're such a good person? Wow, look how kind and generous and how charitable that person is. Do you crave the attention of others? Are you even more insidious and hide your craving for a personal attention under the guise of glorifying God? That happens too. But rather, as we look into the rest of these verses, do not even concern yourself with that. If the praise of man is what you seek, then the reward of man is all you will have. And that man-centered reward is short-lived and will leave you absolutely craving for more. This brings us to our latter half, the praise you receive. Let's go into greater detail about this. Jesus says, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Um, Interestingly enough, Scripture actually does not give an exact command on how much or how little you are to give. Rather, tithing 
or giving of offering, whatever you like to call it, the giving of money to the poor, to the church, or the needy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's not even mentioned in Scripture. Scripture, however, speaks very heavily to the broader principle of caring for the poor and the needy, uh, caring for the widow and the orphan. You can find that anywhere, everywhere. So the concept of, you might have heard this, the, the 10%, 10% tithe, you may have heard of this, for example, uh, originated from the giving to the Levites, uh, the tribe that were called to be servicemen of God rather than uh, gaining and possessing any land uh, from the promised land as Israel moved to conquer the promised land um, of their own. The Levites were not given any land, rather the rest of the tribes were supposed to support them by giving of 10%. As time passed, however, the, this concept of the 10% and tithing grew into extra-biblical commands, and there are plenty of intertestamental period literature that speaks about this, and then so on and so forth. And come Jesus' day, tithing became a very religious act of piety in the Jewish system. Therefore, you can clearly see how this became a point of contention for Jesus to speak upon when it comes to outward displays of religion for the praise of man. So, therefore, it would be this extra-biblical, contentious topic of conversation in which Jesus would hit on first, because we're about to hit a bunch of other topics. Uh, here, there would be no rules, per se, that would apply. Again, God cares about the heart. Um, if there were no rules before and there were these new extra biblical rules added afterwards, um, it would be easy when there was lavish amounts of giving uh, for people to highlight and praise um, those who would give such large amounts of money. However, Notice this, Jesus also recognizes that the giving of money, the giving of one's wealth is also a very real and sacrificial act of worship and demonstration of love towards neighbor. So Jesus says, what does he say here? Thus, when you give, Jesus says when, not if. He's not saying he expects his followers to give money, but rather he expects them to, again, practice righteousness in a world that is foreign to genuine righteousness. Notice first that Jesus says, when you give, on the occasion that you do give, sound no trumpet before you. This isn't some kind of grand entrance of giving, but rather it is that there should never be an act of drawing attention to self during said act of service. Last time I checked, you and I are no kings where we are no queens. Rather, we don't need a company to go before us to announce that some important dignitary, some king or queen is coming. So, doo -doo -doo -doo. Queen Elizabeth is here. We need no herald. We're not Jesus. We don't need a John the Baptist to prepare the way, so to speak. Imagine every time someone needs to announce their good service like a trumpet beforeing that act of service. How tiresome would that be? How hypocritical would that be? 
When you seek to address the need of others, why is it that you would first need to address your need for self-glorification first? Speaking of hypocrites, look at Jesus uses that term. He singles hypocrites out. It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the scribes here. It's anyone. Anyone uh, whom this term would apply. The original Greek originates from the theater. That a man or a woman would wear a mask during a play to play a role in a character he is not. For Wesley Anderson, it's a cap. However, Jesus takes this term one step further and says not only is the hypocrite living a life that is not his own, he's living a lie. He's not only pretending someone that he is not, but rather he is believing that he is someone that he is not. He's believing in that lie as well. The hypocrites in this context firmly believe that they are doing good and bringing relief into the world. But they think simultaneously they deserve a bit, a share of the glory pie as well. We get a piece of that glory pie. And so notice also the sphere in which this hypocrisy takes place. It has to be the public, public spaces, the synagogues and the streets. Uh, in the synagogues and in the streets. Synagogues were the, and still are, the Jewish centers uh, uh, of life. As the temple was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again later in AD 70, uh, Jews relied more and more heavily on the local synagogue for their religious participation and worship. Here, uh, charitable giving would take place and large donors would be heralded and praised and lauded for their giving. Oh, it's... So-and-so, wow, he's so great because he gave such a large sum of money. They would be welcomed greatly and maybe have a thing with their name after them. Uh, Similarly to how many organizations today, including Christian organizations, would give large donors and print their name on a brick or even on a building. How many of you have been to an amusement park, say like a Disneyland or a Disney World? And you've seen that the large donors, what do they get? They get a little, little brick that you can go find in one of the bajillion bricks that was used. <laughs> wow, so great. Uh, simultaneously, the, the streets would be the place where the poor and the needy would actually be. Here, our hypocrites would cry out how much, oh, you poor thing, let me, let me get, get my Amazon Prime credit card and give to the onlookers, and, and they would, uh, sorry, not give to the onlookers, give to the needy, and the onlookers would, would see and be impressed with their generosity. Wow, look how kind Zach Wellman is, giving his Nintendo Switch away to Shihong. <laughs> all this is done not for the sake of giving itself, but for the reward of the praise of the onlooker. And Jesus says, What does he say? Truly, I say to you. Uh, Whenever you're on the receiving end of one of Jesus's truly, I say to you, you're most likely in trouble. He says, amen, amen, I say to you. Here is Jesus's classic one-liner. He is using it to reinforce truth that he is teaching or has taught already. Jesus reemphasizes his point. They have 
what? Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Other Bibles say also in full. They have received their reward in full. This term receiving their reward in full is just one term and it means to obtain with a receipt within accounting of a transaction that just occurred. Meaning instead of giving to the poor and that is all, they are actually purchasing the praise of man. Instead of donating out of a sacrificial heart, expecting nothing in return, these people are buying glory, man-made glory, glory from man. And much like how we buy things and we get receipts for the transaction that, was just, that has just taken place, they have also received an accounting. They have received their reward, praise from man and nothing more. And so now, now God owes them nothing. You have purchased what you came to purchase and you've, you've received it. God has nothing to do with the transaction in the first place and he will have nothing to do with the transaction afterwards. The praise you receive when seeking the glory of man, not the glory of God, is fleeting, it is momentary, and it is gone in an instant. They have received their reward in full. In full, nothing else is due. The reward is complete as the transaction has been completed. Verse three introduces Jesus's solution. But, contrast, but, you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Here is the better alternative. Instead of announcing to the world your good deeds, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Meaning, do not even think too much about how you will carry out this good deed you're about to do. Rather, Nike, just do it. Practice righteousness. Don't think about the motivation. Don't think about the audience. Just do it. Just love your neighbor. Just when you see someone in need, don't think so hard about how will it affect you, how it will bother you, how it will interrupt you. Just help them. Charles and Susanna Spurgeon did not let their left hand know what their right hand was doing when they gave the earnings of those chicken eggs. And so listen to what he writes given this section of scripture on his own commentary of Matthew. You cannot expect, you cannot expect to be paid twice. If therefore you take your reward in the applause of men when you give you a high character for generosity, you cannot expect to have any reward from God. We ought to have a single eye to God's accepting what we give and to have little or no thought of what man may say concerning our charitable gifts. Do it so by stealth as scarcely to know it thyself. Think so little of it with regard to thyself or yourself that you shall scarcely know that you have done it. Do it unto God and let him know of it. There's no mention of chickens. There's no talk about personal acts of service. How ironic would it be as Spurgeon is writing this commentary, the last commentary he would ever write on his deathbed, just be like, oh yeah, there's that one time when my wife and I had chickens and we gave it to the poor. That's a great example of this verse right here. 
that would bring the entire point down. Whenever you listen to a speaker, for example, talk about themselves and what good things they have done, you can stop listening to them. Don't imitate them, even if they make a good point. Because they have nullified their act of service in the first place when they have revealed it to you. Likewise, in your life, let your life and your good deeds be hardly known, even by yourself. Don't think and reminisce on the times when which you've helped people. Move on. Do the next right thing. Do the next loving thing. The goal isn't so much to build a credential of good deeds and coast for the rest of your life as if some kind of savings account, but rather constantly with God ever present before you to live your life to his glory and the good and the needs of other people. Love your neighbor. It does not say when you can stop. It means love your neighbor until the day you die. Then, then, look at verse four. Jesus says, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, your giving, your, your charity, your acts of service done in secret will be rewarded to you by your heavenly father who sees in secret. God sees Everything. People operate under the guise, under the thought, under the the assumption of, I do not want God to see my evil deeds, so I'm going to hide them and I'm going to do them by myself when no one can see. God still sees. But I want everyone to see my good deeds. Oh, yeah. Rather, it should be God sees everything. He sees my evil as well as my good. Therefore, I should live with only this thought in mind. God sees everything. Therefore, let me structure my life in such a way that he would be pleased, rather regardless of whether people see or not. Jesus talked the talk, and he walked the walk. Jesus made no elaborate display of his do-gooding during his ministry. He healed people, and what did he do? He told them to tell no one. He fed people, and he moved on. He instructed people in one town and then moved to the next to teach others also. Uh, For Jesus, it wasn't about establishing an earthly kingdom or building an earthly following, but rather it was to be an example Even so, in the events that led to his crucifixion, Jesus gave no mention to what his death will accomplish on the cross. The forgiveness of sins, the renewal of hearts, the restoration of sinners with God. When he prayed in Gethsemane, that garden, as we will cover next week, he made no mentions to others what he was praying. When accused before the chief priests and the scribes and he was spat upon by the Roman guards and he was mocked by his own kinsmen, the Jewish people, Jesus kept silent. Jesus, the son of God, God, very God, was preparing to do the greatest act of good, the greatest act of righteousness, giving up himself for the sake of his enemies, sinful man made no draw towards himself. He suffered on that cross. He bled for the sins of the world. And so that when he rose again three days later, it was not for his own glory, but the glory of his father. 
that Jesus carried out his father's plan for redemption to perfection. Therefore, on what basis do we take a passage like this? How do we apply this? On what basis do we practice our righteousness before God and God alone? On what basis do we give to charitable causes and to tithe to the church? On what basis of the humiliation of Christ? What other basis, I'm sorry? On the basis of the suffering servant, the Lamb of God that was silent before his shearers. On the blood of Christ shed by the only innocent one for the guilty. Your service, your giving, your charity must be based upon this and this alone. There can be no other recipient of glory, no other praise given but to the Son of God who died for the sins of people. Jesus is the final recipient of all glory and all praise and all honor. Therefore, all of your good must be directed for the good of others and then to the glory of Christ. Your reward, this reward, what is this reward? That our Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is that reward? Your reward then is centered around Christ, found in Christ, and given for Christ. It is said that we'll be given crowns, shared in the inheritance of the Son of God. We will be rewarded in heaven. But I think the second stanza of Richard Heber's classic hymn, Holy, holy, holy informs us of a deeper understanding of what this reward entails. He writes this. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which works and art and evermore shalt be. Our rewards will be returned back to their rightful owner as all glory truly be to Christ our King and to Christ alone. That is the reward you seek and that is the reward we will have. All for Christ. All for Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that So often, our hearts are so insidious. They're so sneaky, uh, conniving, Lord. We know that oftentimes you tell us to love our neighbors, but in some sense, we want a bit of that love to go our way as well. That we desire to be seen and heard by others because our faith is so frail that we lose sight of our prize, Jesus Christ, so often. And so, Lord, our only prayer tonight is that you'd give us a fuller vision of Christ, that truly possessing and owning him and seeing him face to face is our final desire as he is our final reward. Help us to live for Christ and Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen.